Welcome to the show, Fairways and Finance. My name is Jeff Smith. I've been in the mortgage business for 16 years, top quarter percent LO nationwide. And you know, this podcast, we want to talk about your finances, how to grow and accumulate wealth and all things related to the mortgage industry. But we're golf lovers here as well. So we're going to work in some golf. Don't worry for my golf lovers out there. We got you. And I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Hope you're having a phenomenal week. Fairways and finance. I've got a variety of topics I want to go through today. And uh, we're going to hit kind of a few level, uh, high level on a few different things that I, I think are important to keep in mind. So this is a good episode for, for uh, other loan officers out there, for potential clients of ours, uh, real estate agents, lots of different people are going to get some information out of this episode. So let's get into it. First, I want to dispel a myth that is being uh, peddled on social media by some higher level guys, actually, two guys that I follow, Grant Cardone and Gary Vee, um, are talking a lot about how you shouldn't own a primary residence and uh, you should only own investment properties and income producing properties, which I understand what they're saying, like, if you own a primary residence, you don't have rental income coming on in on that residence. Um, so you've got this asset where you could potentially be bringing income in and you're foregoing that income by living in the property yourself. And you could be generating additional income if you rented it instead. And so what Grant Cardone suggests is that you don't own a primary residence, that you rent your primary residence and you only own investment properties. And I just don't, there's, there's several things that I, I disagree with that on. Number one, uh, actually, uh, we pulled some stats from MBS Highway. And uh, according to MBS Highway, the, if you look at the top 50% of wealthiest Americans in the country, so this is all the way up to the 1% wealthiest people in the country by net worth, they have over $10 million net worth. Of the top 50% wealthiest uh, U.S. households, 65% of their wealth is made up from primary residence real estate equity. So when you own a primary residence, for the average American, and in fact, the top 50% wealthiest Americans, it makes up two-thirds of their total net worth. So if the wealthiest people in the country have two-thirds of their net worth tied up in their primary residence, that right there tells you it's probably a good idea to own a primary residence. But the other thing that I just don't understand and, and I don't agree with what Grant Cardone is talking about, renting your, a primary residence, not owning it. Well, if I took my Chandler house, for example, I think my house in Chandler could rent for around eight or 9000 a month, maybe 10000 a month. So that's great. That's, that's $10,000 a month in income I could bring in if I moved out of my Chandler home and rented it out. And that would more than you know, double my mortgage payment. Uh, but then I'd have to turn around and go rent a place for $10,000 a month. So the money that I'm bringing in in rental income, I'm just sending out the back door renting a primary residence. You know, so that, that just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, and then I've got a family. You know, and We have kids. And so when we live in a primary residence, we have a stable home environment for our kids. And moving around uh, every year, having one-year leases and having to pick up my family and, and move – just doesn't make any sense. So buying a primary residence is the one of the greatest wealth generators for the 50% of the wealthiest people in the country. So if it's working for them, then you should probably do it as well because the proof is in the numbers. 
Another thing I want to share with you is uh, just this basic like return on investment calculation that I, I share with people a lot. Uh, and this is just example numbers. But let's say you bought a $400,000 home and you put 10% down on that purchase. So you're putting 40 grand down. And let's say that home averages 5% per year appreciation year over year. So it goes up in value 5% year over year. That home is going up in value 20 grand a year. And on a mortgage of 360,000, on average, depending on the rate, you're paying down the balance on the loan about 5,800 bucks a year. So all, all together, you're building 25,800 a year in equity in a primary residence on this $400,000 home example. You invested 40 grand up front with your down payment. Now you're making a return of 25,800 a year on your down payment money. That is a 64.5% return on investment. I don't know why you would say that's not good because that is extremely good. The S&P 500 averages 7.8% year over year. Uh, Looking back over the last 30 years, 64.5% is a lot better than that, and that's owning a primary residence. So the proof is in the numbers. Owning a primary residence is one of the best wealth builders for Americans and I highly suggest that you do it. I've experienced a great accumulation of wealth by owning a primary residence. And I, too, fall into that exact same category. 60, I'd say right around 65% of our net worth is tied up in real estate equity uh, between primary and secondary residence. So that's the real uh, return on investment calculation for primary residences. Next thing I want to go through here is just an overview on our team, for my team, for what my system is for pre-qualifying a client, how we interact with them from start to finish in the mortgage process. Okay, so if I get a new client calling in, the first thing we're gonna do is have an initial consultation with that client. So uh, either myself or my production manager, Sarah Spinelli, we're gonna have like a 15 to 20 minute phone call asking some basic questions to get an understanding of that client's overall situation. We put all of that information into a CRM system that we use, so we're taking notes during that call. And then when we finish that call, if that client was referred by a real estate agent, that agent will get a text message with an update that, hey, great news, we've, we've connected with the Smith referral. Uh, they're going to be submitting an application. So then when we finish that initial consultation, we send a list of documents to the buyer that they'll need for a pre-approval. We also send them a link to submit an application online. So now they submit their app and docs online. And when that comes into our team, we're going to run their credit. We're going to review their income and asset paperwork. And we're going to give them a pre-approval letter if they're pre-approved. Or we'll ask for additional paperwork if we need more documentation to figure out if they can qualify for a loan. So once we've got the paperwork that we need, then we send out that pre-approval letter And we schedule the clients to have a one-hour Zoom consultation with me. So in that Zoom consultation, I'm going to take them through all the steps to buy a home, what their mortgage financing options are, what the numbers look like for monthly payment and interest rate, total cash to close, all of that. And we break that down in a really detailed level. And so I, I like to do that over Zoom because then I can share my screen and I can show numbers and I can demonstrate what I'm talking about. So client has that uh, consultation with me. Once I finish that consultation, I'm sending the client a follow-up email with the fee worksheets we reviewed and any information they need for next steps. I'm sending a follow-up email to their real estate agent to let them know that we've connected. Here's what they need. Maybe they, maybe they need closing costs. Maybe they need to stay you know up to X price point. Maybe they need 
to reduce their down payment or increase their down payment, whatever these numbers are, I'm sending that information to the real estate agent so that the client doesn't have to send that to them and that the agent and I are on the same page and, and working as a team on behalf of our client. So then the client goes out, uh, they're, they're shopping for homes, they submit an offer, the real estate agent writes up a purchase contract as the offer. So they, along with the clients, depending on what their terms are for the offer, will write up a purchase agreement that's called an offer and send that to the realtor for the seller, the listing agent. And that listing agent and our buyer's agent will negotiate back and forth on behalf of their respective clients until they've agreed to terms and then we're, we're what we call under contract. So once you go under contract, the first thing you're going to do is write a check to the title company for what's called the earnest money deposit. Earnest money is due within 48 hours in most cases, and it's typically 1% of the purchase price, but it's a negotiable number. So if you were buying a home for 500 grand, you would write a check to the title company for $5,000 up front. That $5,000 is a deposit that gets applied towards your down payment at the end of the transaction. So if you put five grand down up front, your total cash to close is 50000 at the end. You would owe 45000 During the first 10 days of the contract, that is called the inspection period. So during the inspection period, a buyer can cancel the contract for any reason. Okay, They have an opportunity to research the neighborhood, get the home inspected, spy on the neighbors, uh, look at the schools, look at the restaurants, parks, all everything that's around there. In those first 10 days, if they, fi they find anything they like, they don't like, they can cancel the contract, get their earnest money refunded back to them, no questions asked. So one of the things the real estate agent will do, and, and this is what good realtors do, is they'll set the uh, buyers up with a home inspector to get the property inspected. So a home inspector will go out to the home, they'll do a very thorough review of the physical condition of the property, and they'll write up an inspection report that they give to the buyers. Now, I always like to warn people, these inspection reports, they have a ton of items on them. And even your just a, a nicely kept, well-maintained home is probably going to have 30 items on the inspection report. So a home inspector is going to let you know what are items to really be concerned with, what are items that would come up on any kind of inspection of any home, even a new home potentially. So uh, the home inspector will walk the buyers through that process. The cost of that home inspection is paid for by the buyer, and the buyer will just give the inspector a credit card at the time they do the inspection. So we want that home inspection done within the first 10 days of the contract because if, if it turns out that there's a major issue with the um, physical condition of the home, as long as that's identified in the first 10 days, buyer can cancel the contract and get a refund of their earnest money. So very important to do that in those first 10 days. At that time, going through those first 10 days, we're going to be starting the approval process for the mortgage. So we'll have uh, disclosures for the buyers to sign with an electronic signature. We'll have the option to lock in the buyer's rate. So unless we do an upfront, what we call lock and shop program, the buyer does not lock their interest rate until they're under contract on a home. So what, from the time that we've done that pre-approval, through the time that they go under contract on a home, depending on what market rates have done during that period of time, their interest rate could be higher or lower than what I quoted them in their initial consultation. Uh, so interest rates change every day along with the market. Any day the stock market is open, we could see a change in, in mortgage rates. So now the buyer's under contract, they have an option to lock the rate, which protects it from any market fluctuation during the approval process of the loan. And then from there, we go through two rounds of underwriting. 
So the first round is what we call initial underwriting. And our one of our underwriters is reviewing all of the income and asset paperwork, the credit report for the buyer. We pull some back-end reports, uh, some fraud reports, and some other reports that would show us if they had any foreclosures or short sales, those kinds of things. So the underwriter reviews that loan the first time through and issues what's called the conditional loan approval. So conditional loan approval means that the loan is approved pending some additional items, and we will let the buyers know what those items are. So my processor, she's the one who takes the file from the accepted contract all the way through closing, and she's the one who's the main point of contact for our buyers to put together the documents that are needed and requested through underwriting after that conditional loan approval. So around that time as well, we're going to order the appraisal for the loan. So an appraisal uh, tells us what an appraiser's opinion of value is of that home. And if if you're putting the minimum down on a mortgage and the home appraises for less than the purchase price, we use the lower between the purchase price and the appraised value to determine how much you can borrow. So if you're putting the minimum down and the home appraises for less than the purchase price, then you would either have to put more money down you could cancel the contract and get a refund of your earnest money as long as you didn't waive your appraisal contingency. Um, or you could go back to the seller and try and renegotiate the purchase price to bring that price down equal to the appraised value. So you got a few options there depending on where the appraisal comes in at. So then uh, we've got the conditional approval. Appraisal's complete. We've collected any documents requested from the underwriter, which is called conditions. Now we go back into underwriting for a second and final review. And then once we have final approval on the loan, the buyers get scheduled to sign closing paperwork. And so they'll sign all the closing documentation for the loan with the title company. They don't sign the loan docs with us. We send our loan docs to the title company. Then the title company schedules them for a signing appointment, which generally will happen at their office or they'll set up a mobile notary to go to the client's house or to their work to sign the docs. Uh, so, and typically you're signing loan docs two to three days in advance of the close of escrow date. So you might sign your closing paperwork on a Wednesday and then the transaction funds and closes on a Friday. Um, so that whole process is about 30 days, um, but we're working off of whatever the closing date is on the contract. So when we get that contract, it's going to tell us what the closing date is and we have to make sure we have the loan wrapped up and completed by that date. Otherwise the buyer's in breach of contract. So we're always working off of the terms of the contract, but on average, that's going to be around 30 days. During that whole process, up front, before the buyer's gone under contract, if the client is referred by a real estate agent, every time we're talking to that client and, and helping them with their application and uh, emailing them or calling them or texting them, the real estate agent is going to get a text message giving them an update on what the result was of our latest contact. Once we're under contract, then we do what's called Tuesday status updates. So every Tuesday, my processor sends out an email to uh, both the real estate agents, any of their assistants and transaction coordinators, including the title company, and gives them an update on where we're at on the loan over email. And she gets this long-running chain going as we go through the approval process with an update every single Tuesday. My production manager, she calls our buyers on Tuesdays and gives them a verbal update over the phone. And then I call both real estate agents and give them a verbal update over the phone. So everybody in the transaction gets a written and verbal update from my team on Tuesdays. I personally reach out to our buyers at the major milestones, so the conditional loan approval and the final loan approval 
and then when when we're funding their loan. So they're going to hear from me throughout the process as well, and that allows me to check in and see how things are going, see if there's anything we can improve on, make sure they're getting good communication. So that that that's the whole process to get through to closing. Once you close on a mortgage, first new mortgage payment will be due on the first day of the second month after closing. So mortgage payments are due on the first of the month. They have a 15-day grace period. But if you pay it after, and if you pay it after the 15th, then you get a 5% late fee. So whatever the payment is times 5%, that's how much the late fee is. And then if you were to pay the mortgage more than 30 days late, then it'll report on your credit and it'll hurt your credit score. Uh, so whatever month we close, the first new mortgage payment starts on the first day of the second month after closing. So if you closed on a home in the month of October, your first new mortgage payment would be due December 1st. If you closed on a home in the month of November, first new mortgage payment would be due January 1st. And then the first of the month, every month thereafter. Okay, so that's high level on the prequal uh, through closing process. And then I wanted to share a couple of marketing systems that we use on my team that, that work really well. Um, one of them is what we call letter of the heart. Uh, our clients refer to it as a newsletter, uh, but it's a one-page letter that I type up to our entire client database, and it's 70% personal, 30% business. So I'm giving them an update on what my kids have been up to, what my wife Danielle and I are up to. I always try and find some kind of challenge that I've come across recently and how, how I dealt with that challenge. And you know that's a really important component of the letter because you're being a little bit vulnerable. You're showing people that things aren't always perfect. And you're also you know showing people what you do to overcome obstacles. And then at 30% of the letter, I'm giving like a market update or some, some kind of industry update related to the mortgage industry or real estate. So we, we send this letter out every other month. And we print it with two photos of our family on the bottom in color so that our clients can see some updated pictures of our kids, uh, see some updated pictures of Danielle and I, and then they're getting this physical letter from me in the mail every other month. On the off months, I'll send out a video to our client database. You know, it's more market business, uh, uh, like centered, more of a market update or some kind of mortgage industry update for our clients as well. So video email one month, uh, letter of the heart on the other month. And I can't tell you how many times I've had past clients come back to us to do a transaction and say, hey, you know what? I'm calling you back, Jeff, because I really enjoy working with you and I appreciate you staying in touch, sending me your newsletter. They always call it a newsletter. Um, so that's it takes about an hour to write, very low cost, one of the most effective post-closing marketing uh, pieces that I do. And then something else that anyone in sales should have, any business owner should have, is a birthday program. And so a birthday program is just a systematized process for making sure that you're reaching out to your most important people on their birthday. So on my team, the way we do it is in the middle of each month, we'll pull a report on whose birthdays are coming up for the following month. So clients and referral partners and friends. My team goes in and puts the birthdays in on my Outlook calendar on each day that they're happening. So on most days at 8 a.m., I've got a calendar reminder for birthday calls, and I've just got a list in that calendar invite of who has a birthday, so I know exactly who to call. And then we're also looking at that list and determining who are our VIPs on that list for that month. And everybody who's a, a VIP client or referral partner, they're getting a treat on their birthday. And so the treat that we generally send out is fairy tale brownies. 
we used to send out uh, cupcakes. But in Arizona, uh, it gets a little hot in the summer. And if a courier leaves a box of cupcakes on someone's front doorstep in July, they will melt and become a humongous mess. Uh, so we've tr- we've switched to fairy tale brownies a couple years ago, and those get sent out in a box with styrofoam and one little ice pack in there. So these things are like weather resistant, Arizona heat resistant, and they're really easy to send out because you just go in and place the order, and then they and send the addresses and they ship it out. So in my calendar invite for each day for birthdays, I've got a note on there on who got brownies. So every day I know who to follow up with with a phone call. So every, and then also with that list, I'm uh, writing handwritten uh, birthday notes to all those people who are having a birthday for that month. So everybody gets a card from our team. Everybody gets a phone call from me. And then our VIPs get the card and phone call plus the fairy tale brownies. Uh, So we plan that out in the middle of each month for the following month. And we use that system to make sure that we're executing on the birthday program every month. So I highly recommend having a birthday program for everyone in your database and putting some systems around it so you make sure it's happening every single month and you're not missing any important birthdays. And then that letter of the heart, I, I cannot overstate how valuable that piece is. Actually, one of the loan officers in my branch, Mike, he's recently started doing the letter of the heart. So he just sent his first one out like a week ago. He's already gotten two leads from it, uh, from past clients who who want to do a new transaction. So it's a, it's a magical piece to send out. Plus, it's just a great way to stay in touch with your clients, and they appreciate getting those kinds of things. Uh, so I hope that helps. If you have questions on that kind of stuff, DM me online, uh, shoot me an email. I'm always happy to help and hope you have an amazing week. Keep, keep on grinding. Keep on moving forward. Hey, guys, thanks for listening. I, I hope you enjoyed the show and got some valuable information out of it. I want to help to educate others and, and help people grow their business and build wealth. And I can only do that with referrals and your help getting the word out about this podcast. So if you come across someone you think could benefit from this, please share it with them. And if there's nobody who comes to mind, a five-star review would go a long way in, in helping me to, to grow this podcast and grow the brand. So appreciate your support.